From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shai. And I'm Tracy McRae. Fertility, the ability to have a baby, to conceive, it's affected by a whole host of things. Diet, stress, age, genetics, each plays an important role in determining success or failure when trying to have a baby. On today's program, we'll talk with the author of a new book about fertility and conception. Also on the program, cases of the bone infection called osteomyelitis are increasing, especially among older adults. We'll find out why. And melanoma, the most deadly form of skin cancer, is also on the rise, despite all of our warnings to use sunscreen and avoid tanning beds. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, Tracy, for a lot of people, making a baby is easy, but not so for others. Fertility is influenced by a whole host of factors, including what we eat, what we drink, our age, how much stress we live with. Oh, my goodness. A lot of factors. Yeah. And for those who can't conceive naturally, there are several choices to consider, including in vitro fertilization and intrauterine insemination. Here to talk about fertility and conception is Dr. Janie Jensen. Dr. Jensen is a specialist in the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility at Mayo Clinic. She's also the co-director of the In Vitro Fertilization Program at Mayo. And if that's not enough, she's also co-author of the new book, and we've got it right here. It's called Mayo Clinic Guide to Fertility and Conception. Welcome to the program, Dr. Jensen. Nice to have you here. Yeah, thank you so much. What part of the population has problems with fertility? Well, it seems like we all know someone that um, has sex once on New Year's Eve and gets pregnant, and that <laughs> happens three times. But um, That story is well circulated. <laughs> exactly, yes. yes. But um, what we actually know is that about 15% or one out of six couples has difficulty getting pregnant. And it could be actually with the first pregnancy. So trying to just start your family, or it could be with a second or third pregnancy where you want to expand it. But either primary or secondary infertility affects a significant portion of the the couples in the United States, and it's often a very private journey that we don't know about. One out of six. Now, I heard you mention the terms primary and secondary. Tell us what those mean. Sure. So primary infertility would be couples that have never been able to become pregnant. And secondary infertility would be couples trying for that second or third baby. So they've been successful in the past, but when they're trying to repeat that success, they're not getting to the goal that they're hoping for. Of all these couples, the one out of, of six, there must be a most common cause. And I suspect that doing it wrong is not one of the, is not on the top of the list. <laughs> well, correct. That, that actually isn't, um, uh, what we cover too much in, in the book, but, um, you are right. You know, usually I call it the big three. So when we're seeing couples that have difficulty getting pregnant, the three areas that we think about evaluating are number one, the eggs. So, um, does a woman have, a good supply of eggs are the eggs of good quality. And the second one is fallopian tubes. This is pretty simple principle. The best sperm and eggs in the world can't get through fallopian tubes that are blocked or damaged. And then since it takes two to tango, the third piece in that um, puzzle is actually sperm. Is there a difference because women, uh, well, I guess I could say couples, are waiting longer to start their families? 
Yeah, that is potentially one of the things that we see. We know that through um, changes in society where women are getting more education, building their careers, and waiting longer to try to become pregnant, that we're seeing uh, some of the difficulty with couples are related to that. But some of the other couples that we're seeing maybe are those who have options that we have from fertility treatments now that maybe never would have had an option to have a family before. So one good example of that is um, cancer survivors. Mm-hmm. So a significant portion of our practice is actually seeing couples that are undergoing some type of fertility preservation. So one of uh, the partners in the couple maybe has just been diagnosed with a serious medical illness. Cancer is one example, but there are others where they're going to require treatment that ultimately could affect their fertility in the future. So advances that we've had in the last decade in particular have made it possible that women can either freeze their eggs, men can bank their sperm, and now we have new technologies for um, couples once they're treated, cured, to build the family of their dreams, that, that possibilities that didn't exist in the past. So let's go back to the causes. You mentioned eggs first, and that means the woman isn't producing eggs, or uh, what's the problem there? It could be several different factors. So um, one one thing that's very different um, among others from men and women is that women are born with a one-time supply of all the eggs they're ever going to have. And at some point, that supply, frankly, starts to decline. And we usually see problems with not only quantity of eggs, but also quality of eggs. So one issue could potentially be that the egg supply is poor, Hmm. and that's difficulty for getting pregnant. Now, on the flip side, there's some women, um, even young women, that maybe have a great egg supply, but they have some type of problem. And one example might be thyroid dysfunction. Another example could be something called polycystic ovary syndrome. And that for these women, even though they have high-quality eggs in a, a great supply, there's some other medical problem that's preventing those eggs from reliably growing, being released, and um, ovulating, so they don't have the opportunity to become pregnant. Okay, number two, the fallopian tube. Now, tell us exactly what that tube is, where it comes from, and where it goes, and what might be the problem there. So um, the fallopian tubes are attached to the uterus, and um, they're open-ended. And I like to think of a fallopian tube almost as being sort of an underwater plant that maybe you'd see on TV that has sort of a floaty end um, grasper. And the idea is that once an egg is released from the ovaries, one of the fallopian tubes, depending on which side the egg is released from, will use its little tentacle fingers um, to pick up the, the egg and um, milk it through the fallopian tube towards the uterus and fertilization of the egg with sperm usually occurs within the fallopian tube. So there is not a direct connection between the fallopian tube and the ovary? Uh, no, it, that there isn't a direct connection. Really? So they are next to each other, but they are not attached to each other. So, so the tube's got to grab it. The tube's got to be able to grab it, and it's got to be able to transport. So sometimes we see women that have a history of an infection in the past of the fallopian tubes where there's been scarring or damage, and the fallopian tube is blocked, and so the egg can't get through. And that's usually a sexually transmitted disease? One of the most common conditions that causes fallopian tube damage is pelvic inflammatory disease, and that can be caused by two um, sexually transmitted infections, either chlamydia or gonorrhea. Those are the two most common agents. But other things that we can see that can damage or affect the fallopian tubes may be a ruptured appendix, for example. The appendix is not part of the reproductive system, but it's very close to the fallopian tubes. So there's a possibility that 
if there was um, a damaged appendix, there could be some scar tissue in the area affecting one or both of the fallopian tubes. Another example might be a gynecologic condition called endometriosis. So that's where the lining of the uterus um, grows outside of the uterus, but it can cause scarring um, with the adjacent structures, including the fallopian tubes, and that might be another condition that could ultimately cause fallopian tube damage. We're talking about fertility and conception with Dr. Janie Johnson, co-author of the new book, Mayo Clinic Guide to Fertility and Conception. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, myth or matter of fact, half of all pregnancies in the U.S. are unintended. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. Our guest is Dr. Janie Johnson. She's an infertility specialist at the Mayo Clinic, and she is also co-author of the new book called Mayo Clinic Guide to Fertility and Conception. So, Janie, uh, there's lots of books out there like this one, aren't there, on fertility, conception, how to conceive, how to have a baby. Why did you guys write this one? Well, um, we're finding a lot of our patients actually consult Dr. Google before they consult our practice, (laughs) and there is a ton of health information and also health misinformation available on the Internet. And particularly when it comes to a subject like fertility, where many people um, are private about their fertility struggles, you know, we're seeing a lot of patients come in with rumors, um, uh, ideas about supplements, things that may not be true. or also popular misconceptions. So our goal was to really provide comprehensive, evidence-based practice from a trusted um, medical site such as Mayo Clinic. Terrific. Well, speaking of myths. Yeah, let's go to this myth or matter of fact. Half of all pregnancies in the U.S. are unintended. Is that a myth or is that a fact? Well, that's actually a fact. So, really? Um, <laughs> that is true, which is also why thinking about having a baby actually should happen even before you're trying to... Um, become pregnant. Yeah, you mentioned a preconception appointment that people could have with their physician. Yeah, in an ideal world, we would see patients even before pregnancy to try to optimize their health. So one example, when we see a woman that's thinking about pregnancy, um, we might want to take a look at the list of medications that she's taking to make sure that all the medicines she's taking are safe in pregnancy. Another thing that we might want to consider is um, the patient's weight. So we know that it may be more difficult for patients who are overweight or obese to become pregnant, and they may have more complications in pregnancy. So sometimes people are also very surprised to hear that for overweight women, even losing a small amount of weight, so maybe 5 to 10% of their body weight, could make a huge difference in their ability not only to become pregnant, but in the pregnancy outcome. So that is called a preconception appointment. I honestly hadn't heard of that before. Is that is it best if the couple comes in, both the man and wife, or is it mainly for the woman? Well, when we see um, patients in our fertility clinic, we actually do consider the couple both as our patients. So in ideal circumstances, we would see both partners in a couple. And um, one of the other important aspects of a preconception visit would be to also look for genetic risks that might be relevant uh, to a future pregnancy, and that would definitely include um, assessing both partners at that time. When you mentioned uh, the unintended pregnancy, I put that together in my head with that secondary infertility that you talked about. So that's people that are having trouble having their second or third baby. Is there a line to be drawn with people that aren't trying to have a baby and accidentally get pregnant versus when they are trying, they can't get pregnant. Is there a conversation to be had in there? 
Well, um, it's interesting. And so we think that um, most couples who are having regular unprotected intercourse over the course of a year, about 85% of them will become pregnant. When you look at that very closely, and some of these studies have been done on um, asking people who are already pregnant when they come to their first OB appointment, you know, how long did it take you to become pregnant? What you'll actually find is that more than half of the couples are pregnant within three months of unprotected intercourse. By the time that you get to about four months of unprotected intercourse, you're um, more than 60%, about 75% by six months. And then between that six-month mark and the 12-month mark, you gain an additional 10% of the couples, Mm. which means you get to 85%. So one of the pieces of information that I often give to patients is that usually when you're trying, the biggest bang for the buck happens early on. So I guess you can you can take that information one way or another if you're mm-hmm. trying to have a baby or not have a baby. But that's also how we give the piece of advice that for women, particularly who are over 35, if they've been trying to conceive for six months or longer, we do recommend that they see a fertility specialist to get more um, evaluation sure. at that point. For younger women, we're a little bit more lenient. So if you're less than 35 years old, we typically say, why don't you try for a year? Because about 85% of couples will fall under that umbrella. Well, the mothers and mothers-in-laws and grandmas, they'll say, oh, you're trying too hard. You just have to relax. Just don't be so stressed about it. Where does stress come into a couple trying to conceive? There's been a lot of um, information and misinformation. So um, here's one example. So we firmly believe that there are many factors about fertility that are out of a patient's control. For example, couples that are doing in vitro fertilization, they really can't control how well the laboratory handles their eggs or whether the eggs fertilize. They do have some control over lifestyle factors. Maybe you could say smoking or weight um, fall under that category to some extent. But stress management is something that we actively recommend for couples. So uh, we recently completed a study where we compared different types of active stress management to see if there was a benefit for couples undergoing in vitro fertilization. And we found that um, meditating, being in the present moment, and having gratitude awareness seemed to be associated with uh, favorable outcomes. Wow. So there's also been some literature that looks at alternative treatments such as, um, or complementary treatments, I should say, such as acupuncture, which is also potentially associated with a stress benefit as um, as potentially having some positive outcomes for fertility treatment. What are the ways a woman can figure out when she is most likely to conceive? What are the keys? Many people are also surprised to find out that an egg is only able to be fertilized for less than 24 hours. So um, timing of trying to become pregnant is actually quite important. So um, there are many different ways that women can get evidence of ovulation. So some women feel um, what's called middle shorts, which means mid-cycle pain. So that's a actually feeling uh, pain that's from an egg being released. Um, Now, we probably also know that ovulation isn't an explosive event. (laughs) I think of it more of as if you squished a grape and some of the grape oozed out rather than you popped a balloon. Mm -hmm when an egg gets released, but that's one of the signs. Um, One thing that we actually really recommend to patients is to use something called ovulation predictor kits. So ovulation predictor kits are sold in the pharmacy right next to pregnancy tests 
They're also urine tests, but instead of testing whether or not you're already pregnant, what ovulation predictor kits test is um, they're looking for a specific hormone in the urine that's released about oh. a day before an egg is mature and ovulates. So um, for women who are using these kits, and we typically recommend that they start about um, – 10 days after the first day of when their period starts. So when we call that menstrual cycle day number 10, that we recommend that they test their urine once a day. The day that kits positive, that's the best time to try to become pregnant because that um, short window for when the egg is about to be released is coming up right then. And I was just going to say that's when, to go back to our list of big three, because we covered the eggs, the fallopian tubes, but then we have sperm. And then that timing, that's when sperm comes in on it. So let's go back to sperm, that importance in uh, pregnancy and fertility. Well, I mentioned earlier that women are born with a one-time supply of all their eggs, and the unfair piece of information is that men continue to manufacture 100 to 200 million sperm every single day. And, and so, it's not easy. I'm telling you. <laughs> so that's a, that's a process that goes from puberty until death, and, um, and it's a very different situation because, um, in fact, um, because that factory is so busy producing sperm all the time, the quality control sometimes is poor. So testing sperm is a critical early part of a fertility evaluation, and we actually care about not just the number of sperm, but how well they're moving and also their shapes, because any abnormality in in one of those factors can reduce the chance of of having a successful pregnancy. When I look through this book, there's all sorts of uh, stories that patients have shared, and I think that makes it an interesting book to read, whether you are hoping to get pregnant or not. Um, Do you find that people have a lot of the same types of stories and that's why you can put those stories in here and it gives people a little bit of, I don't know, they feel like they're not in this alone? Um, Thank you for asking about that. That's my favorite part of the book. So I'm so indebted to the patients that were willing to share their stories and their journeys and we tried to get a variety of patients who had um, different fertility struggles to be represented. But I think the key to what you said is so true. It's really important for people to know that they're not alone because this is something that some couples don't share with anyone else. And it's really difficult when you're a couple, you're both experiencing the same um, difficulty, grieving process, and it's hard to be going through it and also strong at the same time. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jensen, for this update on fertility and conception. She's the co-author of this new book. It's on, this, it's on stands now. Yep. Yes, it's it? available right yep. now where it's books are sold. The wow. Mayo Clinic Guide to Fertility and Conception. Thank you so much, Dr. Jensen. Oh, thank you. It was wonderful to be here. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, a new study has found that cases of osteomyelitis, infection in the bone, are on the rise, especially among people over the age of 60. We'll hear from one of the study's authors about what's behind that increase. And despite warnings to avoid tanning beds and to use sunscreen, cases of melanoma skin cancer are up. We'll talk with a dermatologist about Reducing your risk for this deadly skin cancer. Do you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Let's talk about probiotics. 
There is a lot of interest in them because they're said to contain bacteria that help regulate your digestive system. Many probiotics are labeled gluten-free, so people with celiac disease might choose to take them. But a study from Columbia University found some probiotic supplements do contain hidden gluten, which is a protein in wheat that people with celiac disease should avoid. It is a supplement. It's not regulated, and I know that some people think that that's a good thing, but um, but that does mean that different probiotic formulations will contain different quantities and types of bacteria. They're not necessarily tested. Mayo Clinic Dr. Yuri Saito says if the supplement is not regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, there's no way to tell what's in it. So if you have celiac disease and want to take a probiotic, check with your doctor first. Because research shows there could be hidden gluten in some of these products, which could make your symptoms worse. To a gardener, there's nothing better than getting your hands dirty. Gardening is a complete exercise for body, mind, and spirit. The truth is, gardening is really good for you. There's something called biophilia. Whenever we are in nature, we get relaxed and we, we develop positive modes. So people who garden regularly have a lower risk of depression. They have less, lesser stress, lesser anxiety. They are calmer, and they may even have lower risk of dementia. So they're, they're generally happier. Mayo Clinic doctor Amit Sood says not only is gardening good for your mental well-being, but it's also good for your body. In fact, researchers in Stockholm found for people over age 60, gardening can cut the risk of heart attack or stroke by 30%. And gardening might also help you make healthier food choices because you're growing your own fresh fruits and veggies. So what studies have shown is if you garden for 30 minutes to an hour a day, it's like doing moderate intense activity. It decreases your risk of hypertension, heart attack, stroke, few cancers, osteoporosis. So go ahead, dig in for better health. With today's Mayo Clinic News Network headline, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shine. And I'm Tracy McCrae. And we are with orthopedic surgeon Dr. Paul Huddleston, who actually specializes in surgery of the spine, but he's also an expert on infections in the bone. And, and in fact, you have recently published an article about bone infections, right? That's correct. Uh, I appreciate uh, the chance to talk about osteomyelitis, or bone infection, uh, here with uh, your listeners in the program. Osteomyelitis. That's a mouthful, isn't it? It is. I'd rather just say bone infections. That's so what I say. <laughs> what's the latest on bone infections? The latest in bone infections is that there's been a pretty dramatic rise in the, over the last 40 years. We have uh, uh, the opportunity here in our uh, institution to study a captured population. That is, in the county around our institution, we're able to follow people longitudinally over their lives. Uh, over decades, and we've seen a dramatic rise in infection of the bone uh, with some uh, high morbidity and consequences, uh, especially with the rise in diabetes. It's very interesting. It's pretty hard to get a bone infected, isn't it? It's very hard to get a bone infected. There's there's several ways you can have your bone injured traumatically. That is, in an accident, the bone can come un- become exposed, uh, what people would say oh. a compound fracture. You, you know could, when it cracks and then the two ends come out the skin? Yeah, you don't. That's, yeah I don't want <laughs> Other ways can be if you've had an elective surgery. That is, you had an, a chose to have an operation for another reason and uh, the bone became secondarily infected be, from being open to the air. Other causes are um, sometimes people with infections at other parts of their body, such in their bladder or uh, in a joint, can cause the bone to be infected either directly or with it 
bacteria moving through the bloodstream? Yeah, particularly common way that kids get infection of the bone, which isn't very common, but a, a sore throat or an earache, some of the bacteria can get into the bloodstream and end up in the bone. Not very common, but it happens, doesn't it? Absolutely. And one of the findings in our study, just as an aside, was that with the immunizations for H. influenza for children, that the rate of that particular type of bacteria basically fell off the map. Just no with the immunizations, because I know that's been very controversial yeah. immunizations recently. Because of a flu shot, it helps your bones stay healthy. Well, as a, a type of shot. A type of shot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. Uh, the, the main reason, though, and the, and the focus of our, or the, the uh, dramatic focus of our study was the uh, association between adult diabetes and bone infections. And okay. what's the correlation there? Why, why do patients who have diabetes end up having getting their bone infected? Well, I'm not an endocrinologist, but on the orthopedic side, we see that the clinical effects with uh, diabetes, that people get numbness in their feet. They can't feel their feet. They're more prone to wounds uh, that can develop on the feet. And we know that they have a depressed immune system, that they just don't fight the normal daily infections that we're all subjected to with the same vigor that somebody who doesn't have the diabetes does. And, of course, the second factor is they uh, they don't have the blood flow. Correct. Uh, yes, they sir. get uh, uh, they, Their arteries become diseased because of the diabetes. So they have two things going against them, the inability to feel their feet, so they get a sore on their foot and they don't really know it, and it gets worse and they don't know it, and ultimately the bone gets infected. And, of course, the other problem is treating it uh, it's difficult to get antibiotics to the area because the blood flow is not very good. So two two things. And all you have to do is add, add smoking and uh, diet and exercise in there, and you've got the trifecta. Might you as well know. have the amputations <laughs> early. Yeah. So you had said that the the increase over 40 years has just been so astronomical. It's, diabetes is not the only reason, though, correct? I don't know that I can't. From our data, we have to be careful of what we assume, but I can't put it on anything else. That means it seems to be strongly associated with that, hmm. and uh, which has global health you know, implications also. Um, and uh, Dr. Tom Shives can speak a little bit about this, but unfortunately, one of the dramatic things that can happen with poor diabetic care, poor foot care, is, and with an infection is people can actually lose the toes. That means they have surgery to remove the toes or parts of the feet, and it can get into a pretty vicious cycle where they're just a series of operations uh, that uh, can be very um, un- uncomfortable and limiting. Yep, and here's the most disconcerting thing about a diabetic who ends up having an amputation because of uh, just lack of blood flow, uh, persistent ulcerations, or bone infection, which is not that uncommon. And that is 30 to 50% of patients who would have an amputation on one side will end up having an amputation on the opposite side within five years. And even more disconcerting is that 30 to 50% of those patients who have an amputation will not be alive in five years. Oh, my goodness. So that's what a serious that's, problem is. That sounds like a horror movie. Yeah. It, it does when you think about it. But that's how bad this disease is. I mean, it, it seriously affects people's mobility, their quality of life. And then they have all in the, the, the storm of diabetes and the numbness and the, t- and the feet and, and the other things that can go along with that all, too. So I love the research angle of all this stuff. How did you figure out that you wanted to study this, and how long does this study take? Well, these types of studies can take uh, a long time. First, to have the data to look back on. Mm-hmm. There has to be a 40-year time period that you can rec- go back and look at the data. 
But uh, the ty- this type of research is, in some senses, different and superior to uh, a high-level uh, administrative search because we actually look at the patient's charts. We look a human being looked at every page in those uh, relevant records to see if, if, if there was, in fact, the infection and how it affected them. Uh, it, it really gives you an in-the-weeds, detailed look at, at the problem. And here's, uh, you know, the unfortunate thing, and not just the relationship between bone infections and diabetes, but also the relationship between diabetes and obesity, direct relationship. And that's where most of it comes from, is the epidemic of obesity in this country has also led to so many patients with diabetes, correct? Correct. It's it's a vicious cycle. It's oversimplistic and, and, and actually, you know, demeaning to think that it's just the sugar control. It affects so many other things, uh, the kidneys, the eyes, the, the skin, the feet, and, and hopefully not uh, the loss of the feet. I'm interested if your research just draws the, co- uh, the correlation to diabetes, wouldn't it be that you could draw that correlation also to obesity? I believe, as uh, Dr. Shive said, I think uh, there's a very strong hand-in-hand relationship mm-hmm. between those two, at least with adult diabetes. Uh, children's or juvenile or early-onset diabetes behaves um, um, as a different cause. But the research that you just published is more the link with diabetes. Correct. Okay. With, and it does include some of the children, but uh, the, the biggest impact is with the adult late onset. Did your study suggest uh, that we should be concerned about the emergence of, of drug-resistant bacteria? It did. It showed also a, uh, a prevalence or an increasing prevalence, so an increasing uh, frequency of methicillin-resistant staph aureus, or, or what people would call MRSA or MRSA in the community, yes. So even though um, we have a, a, some new antibiotics, this is still a difficult one to treat and even more difficult to treat in the diabetic because it's difficult to get the antibiotic there because of the compromised blood flow. The compromised blood flow hand-in-hand hand with uh, the ineffective or diminished immune system. One more thing that's important to emphasize. Uh, we've been uh, talking about diabetes and what a huge problem it is, but it's also And important to know that if you keep your blood sugar under control, even if you have diabetes, you can avoid most all of the complications. That's what's important for diabetics to remember. Absolutely. And and that Sentinel study was done at Mayo Clinic uh, by one of our colleagues, uh, Bob Rizza, that showed that tight glucose control three or four times a day testing did diminish the morbidity with uh, uh, that disease. Difficult to do, but it can be done. Dr. Paul Huddleston, thanks for being with us. Congratulations on that paper being published. Thank you very much. Thanks for uh, allowing me a chance to talk about it. Dr. Huddleston, he's an orthopedic surgeon the Mayo Clinic. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, you'd think that with all the warnings about sun exposure and skin cancer, that melanoma rates would be going down and not up. But that's just what's happening. We'll have the latest from a Mayo Clinic dermatologist. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Cases of melanoma, the most serious and deadly of all skin cancers, are on the rise in the U.S. In fact, according to the CDC, the incidence of melanoma has doubled in the past 30 years. Melanoma accounts for only about 2% of all skin cancers, but it is by far the deadliest. Despite this and repeated warnings, Americans continue to flirt with skin cancer by using tanning salons and going unprotected in the sun. Here to talk about the rise in melanoma and what can be done to reduce it is Mayo Clinic dermatologist Dr. Jerry Brewer. Welcome to the program, Dr. Brewer. Nice to have you with us. Thank you. 
Some alarming uh, information and statistics from the CDC. We've had a doubling in the cases of melanoma, the deadliest form of skin cancer, in the past 30 years. So obviously of concern to you? That's right. And we're seeing that right here in Olmstead County as well. Over the past 30, uh, 40 years, we've seen a drastic rise, especially in middle-aged women. How do you explain it? I mean, the sun hasn't changed. Uh, that's, that's a great point. You know, the other day I was looking at uh, Virginia Beach in uh, 1915, uh, 100 years ago, and you'd be surprised at how much clothing people wore at the beach just 100 years ago. <laughs> and I think that kind of talks in general of our uh, comfort level in wearing less and less clothing outside and our uh, activities and certainly tanning beds have, have had a big drastic Do you think that's change. it, not covering up like we used to? Yeah, the you know, the activities outdoors have changed and, and we wear less clothing outside and um, people love to sun uh, and get a lot of sun and exposure. And, and then in the 80s, the tanning bed craze started, which we're really starting to see the effects of that now. Yeah, mm. let's talk a little bit more about that because in women my age, uh, it is just going through the roof. Mm-hmm. And it is, it has to be. Tanning specific. beds? Yeah. No, no. The use We used tanning beds <laughs> when we were young mm-hmm. and now we're all being diagnosed with skin cancer at a much higher rate than mm-hmm. everyone else, right? Exactly. Like was found with this study, we, we've just looked at Olmstead County individuals and women between 40 and 60 are getting melanoma over 2,000% more often than they did back in 1970. Just an astronomical rise. Say that again. 2,000% more than 1970. Mm -hmm. Wow. In middle-aged women. Middle-aged women. That's who you're seeing it Mm -hmm. in. Well, you know, what we really want to emphasize here is that you and I both know that if you catch a melanoma early on, it's easily curable. That's right. On the other hand, if it has already spread, no matter where it's spread to, uh, very difficult to, to treat. So what's the key? Everybody's got moles. What is it about a mole that ought to get you into the doctor? There was an interesting thing that was brought to our attention just a couple of days ago that it seems like the majority of melanomas are happening in normal skin meaning that uh, sometimes the moles that we've had forever might not be what's concerning, but more uh, having a concern of a new mole that pops up, especially if you had tanning bed exposure in the past. But um, you So know, a new mole ought to raise a red flag. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And so a body check is the key piece here because I can look at my arms and I can look at my legs, but that's a whole half of my body that I'm missing, correct? That's right, yeah. <laughs> Taking a peek at yourself once a month is a great activity that's been shown to reduce the chances of dying from melanoma because you get used to your skin. You mm-hmm. get used to your moles. You get used to knowing if a mole is new or not, which is a key thing of, of uh, preventing um, or catching a melanoma early and then seeing a dermatologist once a year. Okay, new mole. Uh, obviously, uh, a reason for concern. What about a mole that's that's been there? What are the changes you look for? Yeah, th- there are some characteristic changes that we talk about. One is if half of the mole looks different than the other half, that's called asymmetry. Or if a, it's not a circle anymore, it's got a real little bit of a jaggedy edge. That's called an irregular border. And then color changes. If there's more than one color Specifically, if you can pinpoint colors of the flag, red, white, or blue within a mole, that can be a concerning change. Wait, red, white, or blue? Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yep. Okay. But but any color change. And and then they say, we, we talk about how a larger mole might have a higher chance of turning into melanoma than smaller moles. So we talk about a mole bigger than a pencil racer might be a concern. But I've seen plenty of melanomas that are tiny little dots, so definitely don't disregard those either. So if there's any concern about it, go in and see your physician. Have yeah. it taken off, right? Right. 
what is that A, B, C, D? I know you said A, which is a symmetry. Mm-hmm. What is, what are B, C, and D? B is the irregular border. Okay, the Not border. a circle anymore. C is color change, so that okay. the red, white, and blue or any other color change. D is diameter, so bigger than a pencil eraser. But, uh, again, like I mentioned, don't disregard the small moles. And then they recently came out with an E, A, B, C, D, E, which is evolution. And mel- for those of us who treat melanoma a lot, we have this healthy humility, healthy respect because it can look very normal. And so any change, even if it looks normal, can be a concern. I have to go back because I don't understand why we, me, and everyone else that I am with on Facebook or in this world don't get it. Just over the weekend, I had friends putting pictures of, uh-oh, and the, showing their terrible sunburn that they just got. I thought, you're in your 40s. How are you not putting this together yet? Why is it that people just don't get it? What do you suppose it is? That is a great question that I've tried to wrap my head around for a couple of years now. <laughs> it keeps you awake I, at night, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> and I think we all fall into it. You know, there's a natural tendency of human nature to think it won't happen to me and there's an interesting study that we don't really get the long-term consequences of our actions until mid-20s, but certainly you'd think by 40s we'd be a little better at that, but it's it's tough. And so let's talk about that, that sunburn, sunburn, mm-hmm. and then does that lead to skin cancer? I mean, I think people just think, oh, I've had lots of sunburns and I don't have skin cancer now. Let's look at the study, <laughs> my own personal <laughs> research. But um, where, where does that tie together? Sun, sun definitely has a, a play in skin cancer in general, and we think in melanoma as well. And there's been some thought that even just one blistering sunburn when you're young can have give you about a three times higher chance of melanoma later. And just three regular sunburns in your lifetime can give you about a double chance of melanoma later. And it tends to be the really intense short bursts of sun that might increase your chances of melanoma. And also the younger you are when you get those intense bursts seem to add to that. Is there any reason why, you know, there are three basic forms of skin cancer, the basal cell, the squamous cell, and melanoma. Any reason why some people end up getting mainly basal cells or squamous cell and not melanoma, and then the next person comes along and has had the similar sun exposure in their life, and they get melanoma? That's a great question, too. And it's really hard to know. A lot of it's genetic. Um, the UVB part of the sun might play more of a role with basal and squamous cell carcinomas. UVA might play more of a role with melanoma. The UVA can go right through windows, so you're not protected from that when you're in the car. Uh, or uh, airline pilots, for example, might have a little higher chance of melanoma. Um, that's a great question. I don't know if we really know how to answer that. but Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, but you could win the prize. Yeah, you figure that out. <laughs> you know, when, when we were kids, and all three of us here at the table, different ages, but when we were kids, we didn't really wear sunscreen. I don't even know if it had been invented yet when some of us were kids. <clears throat> but my kids and a lot of other, you know, uh, a lot of kids now wear sunscreen every day. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be so interesting to see what happens as those kids get older, when they're 40, when they're 50, what happens to their chances of skin cancer? You know what the sunscreen was when I was growing up? It was baby oil. So you keep your skin <laughs> soft and smooth nice and, and you still get it burned. Yeah, yeah, really burn it good. But keep it moist. <laughs> yeah, that's a great thought. I think our major um, problem is going to be the uh, young women once they hit adult, young adulthood. There are some now... Um, dormitories in colleges that have free tanning beds right in the dorm. Mm. And right here in Minnesota, they outlawed tanning beds for minors. But we we had a study just recently where they went around and to see um, if this was really being upheld. And there are some tanning beds that have no uh, people on, on, on there, and people just buy tokens, and anybody can go in, even minors. So I think that's going to be our major hurdle, even though when you're young, you're right, we're wearing more sunscreen. 
Bottom line, a new mole, make sure you go in and have it taken off or at least have it checked. And uh, the changes that you uh, talked about in a mole, any question about it, get it off. Absolutely. We've been talking about melanoma with Mayo Clinic dermatologist, Dr. Jerry Brewer. Thanks for being here, Dr. Brewer. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. That's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.